Hi friends, I recorded this episode just now and I listened back to it and I realized that it wasn't all that great. Uh, I'm going to be putting it up anyways because I've promised myself that I would be consistent with trying to do two episodes a week. Uh, anyways, if you skip this one, I totally understand. In fact, I would recommend that you do and go listen to something else. But if you have nothing better to do, you can listen to this one. Anyways, stay tuned for an episode later this week, which will have an interview uh, with a friend of mine about antimicrobial resistance. I think it's going to be a great episode. You'll you'll definitely enjoy it much more than this one. So stay tuned for that. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Top Snacks Top Cast. I'm Vaith, and uh, this is a podcast where I just talk about things that I think are interesting. Usually there's science and tech and other such topics. So um, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you're a new listener, uh, welcome. Anyways, uh, I actually haven't had a lot on my mind recently. I've been surprisingly productive with this board studying. For those that don't know, I'm currently studying for board exams. Uh, and actually, just today, in a, as of this week, I've been studying a lot of psychiatry. And uh, it was really funny because I was reading about uh, this phenomenon called regression, which is basically when uh, someone is dealing with a very stressful scenario and they, as a, as a response to that, will regress to uh, past behaviors like watching childhood TV shows or playing childhood video games or that kind of stuff. And it's funny because I, I, I realize that that's basically exactly what I do. Uh, on, a, on a pretty regular basis when I'm stressed out, I'll go back and watch some Dragon Ball Z or I'll as you guys know, I'll go back and play some some Kingdom Hearts, and uh, <laughs> it was kind of funny to hear about how uh, I am exhibiting all the classic uh, hallmark symptoms of, of regression. Sometimes, I, I I think that's a joke. I'm I'm pretty sure I'm not actually doing that. Like, I'm pretty sure that's not actually a, a pathology for me to go do that. Um, but. It's just kind of funny. I, I was like reading that uh, and then suddenly I realized that, hey, I kind of fall into this category of regression as a as a coping mechanism. But I feel like maybe we all do that. Maybe we, we all do regress a little, a little bit uh, as a response to certain stimuli. I mean, I, I know personally, especially when I'm home, but even when I'm, when I'm not at home, when I'm on campus, if I'm feeling particularly stressed, uh, I'll definitely, you know, go back and eat something that I wouldn't otherwise eat, something that really reminds me of the comfort of childhood, like I'll go and eat some Maggie noodles, which are like these Indian noodles that my mom used to make for us, you know, on particularly stressful days when we were very young. And uh, I guess maybe Taco Bell is the same way for me, where I would eat a lot of Taco Bell when I was really stressed out in middle school and high school. And so even now I, I do that as a way of kind of reminiscing maybe. I don't know. I don't know why this is turning into a therapy session, but <laughs> that's what happens when you spend a day reading about psychiatric diseases i guess you end up uh projecting all that onto yourself anyways like i said i don't really have a whole lot to talk about today um but i thought i would look at my list of things I, i've started keeping a list of of items that have interested me in this last week uh and there's there's a few things on this list that i thought i would maybe just kind of talk about for a bit one is something that i've i've wanted to talk about for a long time and maybe i'll just kind of talk about it very briefly here and that's this notion of Asian American representation in Hollywood, yeah, I know that kind of comes out of the blue, but I, I've, I've been thinking about this for a long time. For those that, I guess, can't see me, I'm an Indian American individual, and uh, I mean, I'll be honest, I, for a long time, didn't really think a whole lot about the concept of representation in, in media. Uh, I, think, I think part of that was that um, growing up, I, you know, 
I, I like watch like a lot of cartoons and stuff. Cartoons where there wasn't necessarily like racial rep, uh, representation for the most part. Um, like in anime, for example, uh, there's no like specific race of people in anime. It's just kind of like this nondescript race of people usually. Um, and I guess if I ever were to watch like movies and stuff, you know, for the, for the most part, I wouldn't really think about representation. I would just assume like, you know what? Most people in the, in the U S are, are white. So it makes sense. It makes sense that most actors or, or most people that are portrayed on screen are white. Um, but I really started thinking about this more, more seriously, uh, in, in, in part, you know, maybe four or five years ago, since there has been a much more vocal, uh, uh movement of, of Asian Americans, uh, namely East Asian Americans talking about representation in, in, in Hollywood. And then more recently with the release of this, uh, documentary by the comedian Hari Konobolu, uh, called the trouble with Apu, I, I believe it's called. And it, it really started getting me thinking about uh, representation of, of, of different races and cultures in, in Hollywood. Like I, I was always the kind of person where I always thought, you know what, it's not a big deal, but reflecting back now on things like, Hey, the character of Apu was kind of racist and kind of affected, um, my life growing up, even though I, I, I didn't directly participate in watching the Simpsons until, you know, maybe middle school. Um, like growing up, I got a lot of thank you come agains and I got, and I got a lot of really bad butchered Apu inspired, uh, accents, you know, thrown at me because the entire point of Apu as a character was that he was kind of a joke. Like the, the joke for a long time of Apu wasn't necessarily the, the things he was saying. It was how, how he was saying them, right? It was that he had a funny accent and that he would say these unbelievably characterized uh, uh, statements that were, you know, kind of uh, kind of mocking like Hinduism, kind of mocking like the Indian American experience. Uh, anyways, I, this is something that I, that maybe at one point I'll like write down a bunch of thoughts and like really put out there because I I really resonate with this documentary. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's called the the trouble with um, with Apu. Anyways, how did I get onto that topic? I actually didn't, I hadn't uh, planned on talking about the, the trouble with Apu, even though I feel very strongly about it. I had actually written down here talking about this article that I had read. I think it was in Vice from a year or two ago about East Asian representation in Hollywood. And the the crux of the of the whole article was something that I had, it had kind of been, bu- been bugging me for a long time. I think it, it really put it together nicely. And it was basically talk, talking about how East Asian characters in like Hollywood films, Hollywood uh, shows are often portrayed as as subservient um, and, or they are like characters that are usually like very powerful or like very, like, like very much like the leads, like the heroic leads are often whitewashed as in like the character is changed to like a white person or something um, just so that the hero can be a white person. And and so, and and the, the villain or the, I don't want to say that, like servant, like the the sidekick, for example, can can stay Asian, but like the 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 hero has to be has to be uh, white. Um, a great example I, that I hadn't even thought of, but I totally get now, uh, is in the context of Doctor Strange. So in in Doctor Strange, um, I I don't think the main character Doctor Strange has to be white, but of course he's he's cast as a white guy um, by Benedict Cumberbatch, who, who, who does a great job portraying him. Um, so I'm not bashing that by any means, but then kind of the icing on the cake is that his, I guess like at some point he's like a peer, but in like, by the end of the movie, he's like below Dr. Strange on the, on the hierarchy. 
is this guy named I think his name is Wong, and I think he's portrayed by a guy named Benedict Wong, who's a great actor as well. Um, and he's kind of seen as like this bumbling fool who's like you know very talented, but also like very much like you know all he cares about is food and like all he cares about is you know uh the simple pleasures in life and he's kind of seen as like this bumbling uh fool slash comedic character that um is like directly beneath dr strange in in the in the uh hierarchy i don't know i that always kind of bothered me like that kind of portrayal and i'm sure that there's many other um, examples out there. I just can't think of, <laughs> of them off the top of my list. But if you go look up any of these articles, they have great examples. Um, it's a it's a rather commonplace um, thing for for movies and TV shows to have this. Um, I think another example that was referenced is in the Netflix series Daredevil. Um, you know the 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 main character is uh, the main character is Daredevil, who's cast and played by 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 a white guy who's a great actor. I don't remember his name right now, but great actor. He he, he does a really great job in the in, in the role. But um, the role of of Elektra, Elektra is is another character in the in the Marvel universe that's like, I think often like a love interest and like an antihero in the Daredevil universe, and in the Daredevil the Daredevil comics in particular. Uh, she in this case, I believe she was played by like a by a half by a by a half asian american uh actress and of course in this rendition of, of the character who's usually a very strong character who's very independent very strong independent female character uh she is like overly sexualized she is uh portrayed in this rendition of daredevil as like uh very much uh constantly being in need of daredevil um to help her out like she's always like on the verge of death are always like being attacked and helpless. Right. It's like the, the damsel in distress kind of thing. And that kind of very much plays again, plays in again of the role of like the white savior. I don't know. I, it makes me uncomfortable talking about this because I I know that like, it's no one, it's no one in particular's fault that this is how it works, that, that, that this is how, that, that this is how these um, casting decisions are made. Right. Like, like no one is, I think for the most part, no one is being actively malicious by making these casting choices. Right. But I think that there is a, there's a, like a more general cultural thought, right? There's like this general cultural attitude in the U.S. of like the subservient uh, model ethnicity that is East and South Asian Americans, and it ends up being, you know, portrayed in this way. the the one other The one other portrayal that I think is very telling is um, Dopinder in the Deadpool movies. So, for those that that don't know, Dopinder is this character in the the Deadpool movies there have been two now and uh, of course he's he's a he's an Indian character who is a taxi driver because that's not a stereotype or anything and uh he's of course scrawny and like he's of course like scrawny and like a virgin and is hopelessly in love with someone that he is like doomed to never get with like that kind of stuff like he's very much like this emasculated character and he has some really great comedic moments to be sure but in in the context of the movie he's like this subservient cab driver that deadpool kind of like bullies around a bit and like just because this character is funny we're supposed to you know be okay with that i guess and like again like the this particular like this one character isn't really that much of a problem especially in 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 deadpool 2 the sequel where he has a a a little more agency you know as a character in the context of the, uh, of the plot of the, of the sequel. But again, like 
this like constant notion of like the subservient, you know, Asian, like emasculated uh, character, you know, it's very much a trend that is concerning to me at least. And I think to a lot of people, because at the end of the day, like, you know, I, I grew up in a place, at least when I was much younger, where there were very few Asian Americans, there were very few East and South Asian Americans. And so there were, there were misconceptions or rather like they're like all, the only conception that some people had of me uh, and of my race was from popular media. And if popular media is portraying you as like uh, subservient and emasculated and like not strong and not, you know, with, with one's own agency, like that's how people are going to see you. Um, obviously like if you are in a place that has a little more diversity, like once I started going to high school in like Boulder, for example, uh, things were a little, a little more, um, diverse. Uh, once I started, you know, when I went to school in Boston and, and now that I'm in California, like things are more diverse and people have, you know, uh, a more, you know, rational thought of you as an individual that is not anchored upon those media-based uh, portrayals of your race. So anyways, uh, something that, that's been on my mind for a long time. Um, yeah, so that's a thing. Uh, how do we fix it? I think we're starting to get there. Like, there's a lot of great pushes by especially East and South Asian American actors and directors and writers to have, you know, more diversity in casting, more diversity in directorships and stuff. And, you know, things are, are, are starting to get there. There's a great episode of uh, Master of None, which is Aziz, Aziz Ansari's uh, Netflix show. And the whole point of that, of this one episode is that uh, modern Hollywood doesn't allow for more than one uh, character of a given race that is not white in a series or a, or a movie, right? Because if you have like, if you have one black person or one Indian person in, in a cast of a film, you know, that person is just a, a cast member. If there's two then, or two or more, then it is a black film or an Indian film, right? And uh, to kind of subvert that notion, Aziz has an episode where I think there's like, the whole episode is like only three or four like Indian American guys talking about this phenomenon of you can't have more than one as a way of like subverting it. Anyways, I thought it was very clever. It's kind of on the nose, but it's a good episode. Go check it out. Master of None. <laughs> as if people haven't heard of it. Maybe you haven't. I don't know. Okay. Enough talking about race. I, I talk about like race and race relations a lot on this podcast. I, I've honestly never really engaged in that kind of dialogue a whole lot with anyone, including myself. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see that that's one of the things that pours out of me is, is interest in that topic. So cool. What else has been on my mind? Well, okay, current events. How about current events? <laughs> so uh, for those that are that have been following the news about Theranos, um, Theranos is a company that was started by a Stanford dropout named Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, the premise of the startup of the, of the company was that they would take uh, a, sim- a single pinprick of blood from you and do all kinds of diagnostics using microfluidic uh, technologies and microfluidics are is like this whole new field of um, science of I don't know physics engineering I guess um, where essentially you use very very small like use a very very small um, uh, I guess tubing I actually don't know how this works that well maybe I should learn more about it but essentially it's this field of engineering where you manipulate very small uh, volumes of, of fluids and when, when you can manipulate small volumes of fluids the 
concept was that you could, instead of taking a whole blood draw from someone, you could like just get a, a pinprick of blood from their finger, let's say, and then do diagnostics from uh, from that pinprick of blood. That was the concept that this uh, company was started on quite some time ago now, maybe 10 years ago. I should look into the actual timeline. Uh, anyways, anyone in the biomedical field will know that that is not particularly novel, nor is it particularly feasible for certain kinds of blood testing. And as soon as I heard about this company, I think it was like in early college, um, I was like, yeah, there's no way that this can be as good as they hype the, their, their technology up to be. And I think if you look into the like blog posts and, and, and literature uh, from like pathologists and, and, and other doctors on the internet, uh, there was a lot of skepticism, a lot of very healthy skepticism about this company and their uh, technologies and business practices um, from a, from rather early on uh, in in this company's uh, development. Anyways, finally, they, they ended up like raising a, a crazy amount of money to billions of dollars of valuation. Elizabeth Holmes was, at, at one point was considered a billionaire because of these crazy these crazy valuations for the company. And, uh, of course, Silicon Valley bought it up, um, because in Silicon Valley, your valuation is kind of like your, your value as a person, I guess. I don't know. And, um, they had like crazy people, like, I think they had like Donald Rumsfeld or something on there. They had like crazy people from like the department of defense and stuff on their, uh, board of directors. And so they kind of like, you know, built this really amazing image in Silicon Valley of, of them being this big disruptive biotechnology startup. Um, the other thing that happened was that Elizabeth Holmes herself started being portrayed. I don't know if, if it was of her own volition, but she started being portrayed as like this, um, this benchmark or this, you know, great role model for, uh, women entrepreneurs, especially women, especially women entrepreneurs in the biomedical field. Um, because, because there are very few and we need more of them. And so she kind of became like the, uh, the role model and, um, Anyways, you know, because there was, you know, this was very much an emperor has no, or the emperor wears no clothes kind of situation where they didn't really have any technology and they were trying to make it work for a long time. It didn't really work. And then they eventually started turning to what is essentially fraud um, to, uh, to basically like, con- like continue getting funding and to continue, you know, uh, probably up the, the company and its valuation. So I think the actual company itself was um, there were like a bunch of I think civil cases and 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 civil uh, matters that basically stripped Elizabeth Holmes of ever being able to like run a lab for the next ten years or something and like gave her a bit of a slap on the wrist. But there were never any criminal charges filed until I believe this last week when both she and I, I believe the COO I don't remember his name, um, but basically she and at least one one other person on the board or on the on the uh, chairmanship or on the, what's the right word, in the C-suite, uh, were actually given, like, I believe federal, um, but actual, like, like criminal uh, charges. Um, it took a long time for, this, for those charges to be brought, but I think it's very important that, that they do be brought because um, what ended up happening was that there was a product that was, fra- that was fraudulent. It was a straight-up fraud, and um, I think there needs to be consequences for those kinds of people who prop up companies on... Uh, technology that either didn't exist or uh existed but not nearly as well as what they were uh advertising and and you know at the end of the day this was going to be a therapy a a diagnostic company that took patient samples and you know spit out numbers that were necessary for clinical care 
And, you know, at the end of the day, the, the technology has to work for the company to work, right? And, and for there to be good patient care. And I, 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 as far as I don't know, don't know if there were actually any patients harmed by this technology. Um, I haven't read into that. As far as I know, I haven't heard of anything where like a, a patient was specifically harmed by this company. What ended up happening was that they got contracts with like certain, um, I think it was like Walgreens or something. They, they, they got a contract and then the, the, the samples that they were sent by, I think Walgreens, uh, maybe it was Safeway, one of these kinds of big, um, stores that has a built-in pharmacy, uh, they would be sent samples from this partnership and then they would essentially, uh, use like a, an, an available on the market machine to do the diagnostic and then just brand it Theranos diagnostics, you know, um, to pretend like they, they actually had some kind of, uh, good, uh, in-house built technology, even though they didn't. Anyways, as far as I know, there, there weren't any patients who were harmed by this. There may, those patients may come out if, if there were patients who got a bad test result or if there were patients who got some kind of test result that was wrong that uh, ended up getting harmed by downstream clinical decisions based on those numbers. As far as I know, the actual Theranos technology that they purported themselves was never put into production. So as far as I know, all the actual uh, numbers that patients got from a Theranos diagnostic were just from from off-the-shelf kinds of uh, machines that have already been validated as, as working and are used elsewhere, but aren't obviously built upon the Theranos technologies. Anyways, I digress. For me personally, this was very interesting to watch over the last, you know, three, four years because I'm going into the medical field, I'm going into medical research, and I certainly haven't ruled out the the prospect of of either going into into business or, uh, you know, if at some point I'm lucky enough to invent technologies in in the lab that can be commercialized, I certainly want to be involved in that process as well. In, in the process of starting up a, a biotech company and, and, and creating products from, from research products, right? Sorry, creating products from the output of my research. So now in the aftermath of all this, of all this Theranos stuff, there kind of is this question that people, that people are, th- are throwing around, it, which is that in the context of this massive fraud, can there be, or, or like, like how will this end up affecting the, uh, the, the, the funding landscape for biotech investing. So if, if tomorrow I, I come up with, with something really cool in the lab, uh, that's like some kind of biotechnological um, innovation, and I want to spin off a company and, and get funding for that company, will uh, people in Silicon Valley fund it? Um, because they, they just saw this big fraud, like how, how will they know? So I guess the, the question is like, will VCs in Silicon Valley fund biotech stuff? And this is a question that that's been asked to me a lot by like family friends and my friends because they know that I have some interest in this. My personal opinion is that people will be more skeptical. So like as some background, right? Um, if you look at the people that were funding Theranos, it wasn't biotech VCs. Like there are, there's an entire set of of of, comp, of, of VC firms and angel investment firms and stuff, right? That are all like that have very much a biotech focus and they have like PhDs and uh, and MDs that do due diligence for these VC firms. So they'll read the papers, they'll read the data, they'll really dig into whether or not this technology, a, a given technology that is being sold by a biotech startup is viable and whether or not it is um, legit. So none of the people that funded Theranos were 
actual biotech VCs. They were Silicon Valley people. And as far as I know, they weren't actually like big name Silicon Valley people. I think they were like random Silicon Valley people um, that basically bought into the hype and didn't do due diligence because they, I guess, didn't have the capacity or, or, or didn't have the infrastructure to do the kinds of due diligence that you need for a biotech um, startup. So they, they didn't do the due diligence and they got burned by it. And um, honestly, if you're a VC firm and you don't do your due, your due diligence and you get burned by it, that's kind of your fault. Um, my guess is that there will be um, a little more scrutiny, especially from Silicon Valley investors, about uh, biotech funding. So if, if someone is trying to, to set up a uh, biotech company and they want to get VC funding from a Silicon Valley type investor, they'll probably get a little more uh, scrutiny than before. I think that scrutiny is probably still less than like a formal like Boston or New York based biotech VC because those guys really do their do their due diligence and I'm sure that there's you know really good biotech VCs out here in the in the in the valley as well. So I think that um, like more traditionally like software engineering or or like software and 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 physical hardware based VC firms will probably start spending more time uh, investing in the in the infrastructure and in the in the connections and the contacts that are necessary to do due diligence for biotech technology. Um, I think that businesses, it'll be, it'll be basically business as usual for the usual biotech VCs. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that this won't really affect, sorry, this won't really affect VC like funding and the VC funding landscape, in my opinion, that much, except for that if you are someone with a not legit technology that you're trying to kind of prop up on a company to make money for yourself, it'll be harder for you. So sorry. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, it, it's been very interesting to hear about um, all of this stuff, all of this Theranos stuff, you know? Um, I do feel bad. I do feel bad because I, I don't think that Elizabeth Holmes is, you know, was, at least at the beginning, trying to be malicious. I think that she was someone that saw something interesting in uh, microfluidics. I think she, like, saw it in, like, a freshman class, and she was like, yeah, let's let's do this, and she comes from a very connected family. I think her father was like a former ambassador or something. So she had like a lot of connections and that made it easy for her to find people to put on the board and, and it made it easy for her to find um, funding. And it kind of took off. And once you're kind of on that train, um, you know, people didn't do, 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 do people didn't do due diligence. And so um, that rocket kind of took off. And once you take off, it's hard for you to fold a company once you realize that, that the tech doesn't work. Um, I think, you know, that, you know, the, the realization that the tech didn't work happened some years ago. So since then she probably should have done, done something, uh, that wasn't fraud, <laughs> but she didn't. And so she'll probably go to jail, I think, or get a big fine. We'll see. The, the cynical part of me says that she is like a well-known like white woman that did a white collar crime. And so she may not get the kind of, uh, the kind of punishment that someone else in her shoes may have. That's me being very cynical. Um, but that may, that may happen. So we'll see how it plays out. Maybe I'll talk about it more once we kind of see how the, how the trial goes and we'll see how the sentencing goes. If, if there is, you know, a final conviction. Oh man. (laughs) Anyways, that was me talking for quite a long time about, uh, Theranos and about Asian American representation in uh, Hollywood. 
two things that I didn't think I'd be talking about a couple days ago. So it's funny how this all works out. Anyways, if you're still listening, thanks for listening. Um, I'll be putting out what I think will be a very interesting episode in a few days talking about antimicrobial resistance, and it'll be my first interview-style podcast. So, you know, things are on the up and up. We're getting some interviews. We're getting some interesting feedback. Uh, Many of you have been messaging me and giving me great feedback about what what you guys like. If you have things that you want me to to talk about, um, you know, message me, and I'll talk about them. Anyways, until next time, this has been Top Snacks Topcast. I will see you probably Friday. Bye.